Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, then let's go to our text today in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. The title of today's message is The Unwillingness to Change. And as uh, you recall, we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're in what's called the seal judgments. This is the first half of the seven-year tribulation that basically is hell come to earth, where God's judgment is being poured out on humanity. And the title is called The Unwillingness to Change because what you're going to see are the people of this world who will be able to see the truth, see supernatural and miracle activity from God himself and know where it's coming from, and they still will reject him. They still will turn their backs on him. You're going to see the mass of humanity at this point in time not change and not repent and get themselves right. And honestly, if you look around today, I don't think any of us would be blind to this. The world is getting more belligerent as we're moving ahead. Think about 10 years ago, what we were at 10 years ago as a nation to now. And you're getting to the point where you see on TV, people can't even have dialogues anymore. If you have an opposing viewpoint... They get hostile with you, don't they? They didn't want to hear it. There's no debate anymore. You think about what's going on in Berkeley up there. That was where the free speech movement started is Berkeley. And now Berkeley has turned into a totalitarian state, so to speak, and won't let anyone with a different opinion other than a leftist opinion give their opinions up there. If you bring in a guy like Ben Shapiro or Milo or anyone else, they go ballistic and they riot and they destroy things. And you're seeing this with the media. If there's anything that's Judeo-Christian or whatever, or even conservative for that matter, that's attached somehow to Christianity in any form or fashion, whether it's being against abortion or gay marriage or whatever it is, the media then will demonize that person and try to destroy them. And we've heard reports now with Facebook and Twitter and the social media doing shadowing and taking people's tweets, and you don't, you don't even see what they're tweeting or don't even see their social media because they're censoring that. Amazing. So I thought we lived in a country where there's free speech. But now apparently if you say something according to what the Bible says, that's a hate crime. That's a hate speech. And boy, they're just not going to tell you that. They're going to ramp it up to being hostile towards you. See, what's happening, guys, you have to understand what's happening in America. You go from soft persecution where people don't like you and call you names to eventually legal persecution. We're in it today and then eventually hard persecution. Let's talk about the legal persecution and how things are ramping up. Just think of the state of California and the kind of debates that we're having. Let's take the topic of abortion, right? As Christians, we're against abortion. End of story. It's a black and white issue. No problem, right? And we have organizations throughout California who are pro-life and trying to help girls out in their pregnancies or whatnot, not to abort, but to keep the child or give the child up for adoption or whatnot, and try to help these, these girls through this process. From a Christian standpoint, even like the Bakersfield Pregnancy Center here is a very Christian organization, and they're trying to do their best to do it. But guess what? Starting January 1st, California made a law stating that, that the groups like the Bakersfield Pregnancy Center have to give notifications to girls and put signs up in their buildings saying where they can go get an abortion. Now, do you understand how ridiculous that is? You're going to a pro-life organization and telling them you have to advertise for abortion. That would be like going to Pepsi-Cola and telling them you have to advertise now for Coca-Cola and put up the advertising signs in Pepsi. That is the most ridiculous law we've ever seen. But what's happening is California is becoming hostile to anything that's Christian, anything that's conservative that's attached to Christianity or a Judeo-ethic, Christian ethic. 
And so we're seeing the world ramp up in its fervor, in, 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 in mentality, this just rogue mentality that you can't even debate. You can't even have a good discussion. And forget about saying that Jesus is the only way. Those are fighting words. How can you be so intolerant saying that only Jesus is the only way? All roads lead to heaven, they'll say. How dare, how intolerant you say something like that. You belong in another era. In fact, some have even ramped it up. You belong in the grave for saying things like that. That's how bad it's gotten. But here's the deal. It's not going to stop. It's not like we go back and people are going to say, yeah, you're right, man. That was crazy. We shouldn't have been like that. It's going to ramp up. It's getting worse, and history is linear, and it continues to get worse, and you're going to see this in the book of Revelation. we got cake makers here that can't even decide if they can make a cake or not because some, some LGBT uh, group wants to demonize them and destroy them. That's here in Bakersfield. You don't have a right then to do your private practice as a business? Come on, that's ridiculous. But now what's happened? It's even hit us locally. I was doing an interview this week on the radio with Philip Lee, and a lot of you know who Philip Lee is. If you have someone in your family or friends that are struggling with homosexuality and lesbianism and trying to get out of that through Jesus, take them to Philip Lee, please. He's a ministry partner with us. But we were doing an interview, and he asked me a question on the program. And he goes, let me ask you a question, Brandon. The church seems to be caving in on this issue And it's not really addressing the issue, not providing help for people to get out of it, either simply ignoring it or actually going along with it, like it's no big deal, and reinterpreting the Scriptures. He says, do you think the church can overcome this? And I said, well, it's interesting what you that question. I go, it depends on what you mean by the church. Do you mean the remnant church, or do you mean Christendom? I go, if you're referring to Christendom, that includes, as Jesus said, the apostate church, the liberal church, the tares among the wheat. And I said, I don't have any hope for Christendom overturning this issue. Now, the remnant will hold out, but they'll be like Noah, who will get eight people saved on an ark, and that's probably about it. But for the general course of Christendom, the church will not overcome this issue because people are getting hostile, and a lot of the fake churches are afraid of the hostility. They just don't want the persecution. So at the same time that the world's getting hostile, the church or Christendom is losing its backbone. It cannot fight the culture war. It's caving into it and just then accepting it as it is. So with all that said, where is this going? It's heading in this direction that we're going to see, this outright rebellion. And I know that's a long intro, but you you have to understand the setting. That's the setting. We're in the tribulation period, and this mindset that you've seen has ramped up to a fever pitch, okay? These people at this point in time have seen the Antichrist, and they think he's great, the best thing since sliced bread. They're going to think he's wonderful. They're going to think he's the Messiah. They've seen World War III. They've seen famine. They've seen death. 1.9 billion people are dead on the planet, unburied. This is what all these people are seeing, this in context. They have seen prior to the tribulation the Gog and Magog war of Russia and Iran and Turkey attacking Israel. They've seen the Psalm 83 invasion of Israel. They've even seen the rapture, so to speak, not seen it, but experienced it, even though they don't know what it is. But all these Christians disappeared. And so they're probably going to say space aliens took us up there with E.T. And, and, you know, we're in the spacecraft with the aliens and the aliens took all the bad people. They'll at least have experienced that, that all these people disappeared on the planet. So they've, they've seen a lot of supernatural events, a lot of death, a lot of destruction. World War III, the Antichrist is on the scene. It is full-fledged tribulation, okay? Full judgment. And I I give that context to you so you can understand their attitude. You and I are sitting here thinking, wow, if I saw all that, I would get right with God. That would scare me to death if I saw all of that going on. That would really wake me up. But let's see. We go to Revelation 6, 12 through 17. This is the sixth seal. With all that background, here's what happens. This is in the first half of the tribulation. Verse 12, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. 
So let's talk about earthquakes to understand what's happening. This great earthquake is a global earthquake. It envelops the entire planet. If you jump to verse 14, I'm going to jump up to that verse. It says in verse 14, And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. So this global earthquake that shakes the entire globe moves mountains and islands. You think about people on islands. There won't be an island after this earthquake. A lot of the mountain ranges will disappear because of the seismic activity that God will cause. Now, one of the best commentators on this is a guy like Henry Morris, who founded ICR. And he makes an interesting note about this. He says, the earth's crust has a whole network of complex faults, all resting on a mantle whose structure is largely unknown by geophysicists. He goes, the controversy is whether or not the crust consists of a great moving plate or plates, and that is where the debate is. The ultimate cause of earthquakes is still a matter of controversy. In all likelihood, the entire complex of crustal instabilities is the remnant of Noah's flood, especially the breakup of the fountains of the deep. And I think he's absolutely right. The reason the birth pains that Jesus talked about, about earthquakes, is that that's the leftover of Noah's flood. Noah's flood broke up the fountains of the deep, the water highways under our crust, and messed everything up. And we've been having earthquakes ever since. But because of that, the earthquakes will increase. Well, Jesus latched onto that and said that will be the sign or one of the signs that you're getting closer. This is a real earthquake, a literal earthquake that shakes the entire globe. So it sounds like the entire plates or whatever you want to call them, there's controversy on that, shifts. Everything shifts on the planet. And so that mountains are gone If you're an island out in the middle of the water like Hawaii, you're gone. And so entire places will change geophysically because of this great earthquake. Now, it's going to cause a lot of havoc on the planet, as you can tell when you have that kind of stuff. Tsunamis would pop up. Tidal waves would pop up. I mean, you would have all kinds of cataclysmic events that would be set off by an earthquake that shook the entire planet to its core. But also... It is not only a literal earthquake, it's what earthquakes symbolize. It's what earthquakes symbolize. And we know it causes destruction, but the reason God uses earthquakes is He sends a message through the earthquake. Now, if you recall, some of the messages means that His presence is there. Like on Mount Sinai, they experienced a great earthquake because God was on the mountain. At the cross, when Jesus died... The earth shook to show you that he was God, that God was present there. And even at the resurrection, the earth shook, all symbolic of God's presence is there. God's presence is there. Okay. But there's also another symbol that was it's used for eschatology or the study of end times. It's a message that accompanies earthquakes for the end times. And what is it? Well, we get it from the writer of Hebrews. The message in earthquakes is this. I want to show you this. This is in Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Let's stop there and get some context here. He's referring to the generation with Moses out in the desert who heard God speak from the earthquake and heard God speak to them at that point in time. And what happened is they refused him by going into, they didn't want to go in the promised land, if you remember that. And so the penalty was you're going to stay and wander in the desert for 40 years until that generation dies. Remember that? That's what he's referring to. So he's referring to in the current context that believers are doing the same thing. They're walking away from their faith in apostasy. And he says, if that generation needed to be afraid, he goes, if you apostatize now, you really should be afraid. Okay, so that's the context. But I want you to get to the earthquakes. Whose voice then shook the earth at Sinai. But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, future, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are, that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Let me unpack this. The earthquakes that God is going to use and the the message behind them, even in this one in context, is this. 
I am shaking what humanity thinks is their security. If it's their money, if it's their retirement account, if it's anything they put stock into for their security, I am literally going to show them I can shake that and it's not stable. They have built their houses on sand. That's what the messages of earthquakes are. If you experience an earthquake today in Bakersfield, that's the message biblically you should take as a reminder, don't get too attached to this world because I'm shaking everything to show humanity that I am the only source of security in their life. And the idea that cannot be shaken is his eternal kingdom. Only his eternal kingdom, God's kingdom, cannot be shaken. It is secure. That's why Jesus said to build your life on the rock, not on sand. That's the idea, because it cannot be shaken. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, the eternal kingdom, the messianic kingdom led by Jesus, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And this consuming fire has to do with judgment. He's pointing out that our God is not only a God of love, but you do not forget that he's a God of justice. And he must bring justice to the situation in that consuming fire, which you're seeing in the book of Revelation. So that's the symbol of earthquakes. It shakes the entire planet to tell the inhabitants there, all your stock in the Antichrist all your stock in the one world government, in the one world religion, I am going to shake and show you I am your only security. Loud and clear, God, you would think that would freak people out enough to say, I need to get right with Jesus. You'd think, but it doesn't. Back to verse 12. More happens. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. That's the idea of a goat's black coat that they use in the Middle East. It just blackened out the sun. And the idea is when you see the sun as being blackened out, this is either supernatural or a reaction to what's going on as far as the earthquake. Maybe it threw volcanic ash into the air. Maybe the fumes coming from, you know, like a Mount St. Helens eruption is blackened out the sky. So maybe it's a secondary issue, or maybe it's supernatural. There are actually five blackouts through the tribulation period, one at the beginning, one at the end of the second coming, and then three throughout the entire tribulation. So this is one of them. So this is number two, blackout. And then it says the moon will become like blood. So it's a, it's a blacking out of all natural light. They can still see the moon, but it has this red hue to it. So what does all this mean? It is literal. Natural light is blocked out, either supernaturally or by the dust and the fumes and the ashes in the air. We don't know. But what's the message? When the sun is blackened out by God, it symbolizes judgment. Judgment is occurring. And the withdrawal of his long suffering. Again, I'll take you to the cross. A lot of movies portray when Jesus is on the cross, they'll have like clouds come over. That's not what happened. It was a supernatural blackening of all natural light. Why? Judgment was happening. But to who? Or whom? Jesus. The judgment of us was being put on him. Therefore, all natural light got blacked out. What does hell look like? Black. Black is darkness, right? So it's, a, it's an extinguishing of all natural light, which is a form of judgment. So God is sending a symbol through the blackening of the sun. I am getting ready to judge. I am judging, but the final judgment is coming when my son comes back. Get ready. The idea of the moon turning into blood, why, what was the significance of a blood moon? It speaks of a loss of life and death through the judgments that I'm getting ready to carry out. You will lose your life possibly, and you will die but it's not like they don't know. Two seals before this, 1.9 billion people on planet Earth are dead. It's not like they're not accustomed to, to bloodshed. It's happened. World War III has happened. So God is trying to say, more is coming. Please get right. Please repent is God's 
call out to these people. And even more happens. Verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. The term aster in Greek, this is not like a sun star because anytime they see a heavenly body, they called it a star. So what this is probably referring to are meteorites hitting the planet. And the planet is now not only being blocked of natural light, but then all of a sudden a meteor shower is pummeling the entire planet. And we don't know how big these meteorites are. But just to take some from history, the famous one that's in Arizona that where the meteorite struck there, the crater is 4,200 feet across and 600 feet deep. The estimation that this meteor was only about 300 feet across, and it made an impact of 2 million tons when it hit. And that's just one. Siberia in 1908 devastated about 1,000 square miles in just one impact. They estimate that meteor was only 200 feet across. The shock waves from it hitting in Siberia was felt even in Europe. And so 20 miles around where the meteorite hit was just totally devastated. That's just two in history. Imagine the world being pummeled by multiple meteors falling from the sky, pummeling the ground, along with there's no natural light. The earth has shifted its core with uh, plate tectonics moving and things of that nature. I would think that would get your attention. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I would think, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but I better get right. You would think, right? You would think things like that would wake people up. But it reminds me of 9-11. You remember what happened in 9-11? Churches were packed after 9-11. Do you remember that? And we studied that, actually. It only stayed up for one month. Because after a month, when fears subsided, they went back to their normal life. And the churches went back to their normal attendance patterns. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Anyway, we see all this, and then let's go to one more, and this one will blow you away. Guaranteed, this will blow you away. You ready for this one? Verse 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and every slave and every free man, so everybody from every class, rich, poor, slave-free, doesn't matter, everybody on planet earth sees this one. They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Did you get that picture? Let's unpack that a little bit. The sky receded like a scroll as if you would unroll a scroll. This is a supernatural occurrence. It's an act of grace on God's part. The idea, and Isaiah talked about this idea of the sky rolling up like a scroll, is supernaturally, it's like in the ancient world you had a scroll and you had two things and you would unroll it like that and you would open up and as you opened it up, it would show the contents. That's how you read things. Then when you were done, you would roll it back up into two scrolls. So it had two handles. He's saying that the sky rolls like a scroll. It opens up into the next world. That God supernaturally breaks through the atmosphere above planet Earth and allows the inhabitants of this Earth, the Earth dwellers, to peer into heaven. And what do they see? What do they see in the text? The first thing they see when God peels away this space-time continuum, and he actually opens it up and opens the veil into the next world, who do they see? They see a throne. And they see someone on a throne. And who is it? It's Jesus. And let me ask you this question. Do the captains, the commanders, the kings of the earth, which is the ten kings that are ruling the global kingdom on earth and all these, every slave and free, 
Do they know who it is? What does the text say? They're saying, who is that? I don't know who that could possibly be. I don't know what's going on. What do they say? It's him. It's Jesus. He's on the throne of God. So he is God. And whose wrath is this? It's his. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You mean that they won't be ignorant of this? No. No, no, no. See, God is so gracious. People say, if I saw a miracle, I would get right. If I just saw a miracle, I just need God to do a miracle in my life, and I would be right. Guess what? That's already been tried. The greatest generations that ever saw the most miracles are the most unbelieving generations of all time in biblical history. The first generation that saw a majority of miracles was with Moses and Egypt. Then the other generation that saw the most miracles is the first century with Jesus. The third group that sees miracles is the group in Revelation, and they see the sky split open. They see Jesus on the throne. And do you think it causes belief? You have to get this one straight, guys. Miracles don't cause anyone to believe. You would think they would, but the cessation of the physical laws of our universe don't impress humanity. They don't. What did they do in Jesus' day? They just explained it away. They lied about it, right? They knew he was doing miracles. What did they do? Just explain it away. Ah, that's not nothing. The walking on water thing, ah, anyone can do that. I mean, are you serious? I mean, that's their mentality. Uh, breaking, you know, he, he turned loaves of bread and fish, and he fed 5,000 and 4,000 on another occasion. Yeah, you know, that's, that's all made up. The human mind will just completely dismiss it. In this one, God is revealing himself, and he's showing his son on the heavenly throne, and they recognize it's his wrath. And what do they, what do, they do? What's their response? I need to repent. No. What is their response? Fall on us, hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. We can't stand from it. How come they don't say, save me? I need to be saved. Jesus is making a point to all of them, all humanity. It's probably for one rotation of the planet. I'm the one allowing this to happen. I'm the one extending my wrath. So don't make any mistake what the Antichrist tells you. It's not space aliens. It's not uh, because of global warming that you're having convulsions. of the. It's me. I'm the one doing it. And I want you to identify that it's me because something worse is getting ready to happen. You may lose your physical life, but if you lose your soul, you'll be separated from me for all eternity in a place called the Lake of Fire or Gehenna. And I don't want you to go there. So I'm trying to wake you up up humanity please wake up it's me i'm the one doing it and yet hide from his face and from the wrath in fact they want to die they think physical death will escape uh, will escape them from god what are you crazy what are you insane yes they are That's what happens. In your face, you have supernatural miracles happening. God opening the heavens saying, it's me. It's all me. And all these things are happening, and they don't want anything to do with him. They would rather go to hell. Are you understanding what the Scripture is saying? They would choose hell rather than be with Jesus. That's the mark of insanity. I don't know how you cut that any other way. That's bad. And notice, let's just unpack this just a little bit. Who do they pray to in the text? Who are they talking to? They're praying to creation. Did you see that? They're calling on creation to hide them. This is the ultimate pantheist. This is Al Gore's religion, right? He's a pantheist, right? You ever take that out? He's a pantheist. This 
this is, they're praying to Mother Nature to protect them. Mother Earth, Gaia, the female deity to protect them. Not Jesus. They're praying to this, this worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's Romans 1, right? How do you get like this? How do you get like this? How do you get to the point where you're seeing Jesus in heaven and you don't want anything to do with him? This is, this is bizarre. But you don't have to go further than, than what the text is saying, and I'll show you. There's two key words which are called remezes. A remez in Hebrew means a hint. It's, a, it's a, uh, another way of interpreting prophecy. And the prophets will insert them into text to get you and I to remember Oh, wait, I've seen this before. Remezes are hints in Hebrew, okay? There's two hints in here of how they got like this. And I don't know if you've spotted them yet, but there's two hints. What did they do? They did two things. Hide in that passage in verse 16 and fall on. Hide and fall on. The idea of a fall on could be cover me. Hide. Hide, cover, cover, hide. Remez, hint, hint. You should have already picked up on that. Where are we taking it? John is saying, go back to Genesis to understand this. Because what did Adam and Eve do? Cover and hide. Hide and cover. Same thing. So the key to understand this without your mind blowing up, saying, this is ridiculous. How could humanity do this? This is how belligerent they get? Yes, because John is trying to say, I want you to go back to the garden, and I want you to unpack it so you can understand how they got this way. Loud and clear, John. Let's do it. Let's unpack this. And this is our application. How does our world get so belligerent? How does the people in your family who don't know Jesus, as they continue to live, get more and more belligerent to God. Don't have anything to do with them. I've seen people on their deathbeds, guys, on their deathbeds. They're getting ready to go into eternity and want nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing to do with Jesus. And you're like, man, that's crazy. You're going to die. I don't care. When I face God, I'm just going to tell it like it is. All right, it's not going to be you telling him it like it is. It's going to be him telling you like it is. Good luck with that one. I wouldn't want to be you. But they think they're going to be that bold, standing in their own filthy righteousness before him, and, and, and they're going to have it out with God. Sure. We'll see how that works. Yeah. But let's go back to the garden, and let's explore the remezes, because I think it's important to understand the human heart in this. And how does someone get like this? Because... Believe it or not, Christians can get like this. Not, they can't lose their salvation, but their hearts become hard, and they get belligerent, and they get stubborn, and they refuse to grow. Yeah, it can happen to Christians too. Well, what happens? Let's do some application. How does something like this happen that you don't even believe miracles? Number one, I want you to go back to the garden, and I'm going to give some statements here and unpack every statement. Number one, and talk about humanity, that future humanity, even humanity today, and you can include Adam and Eve in this, and ourselves. The first thing you see in the garden is that, and the interaction with Satan is this, that they believe that they have misinterpreted or misunderstood what life and reality is about. So what Satan does to get them to think they have misinterpreted reality in life is he says this to them. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he interjects doubt into their minds to make them think they're not thinking straight, that they're not in reality anymore. It's to doubt God, doubt the command, but doubt the reality they're in. Satan is changing the reality for them by words. Has God said? Now, that's the initial stage, and we all have been there. We all, before we came to Christ, were out of reality. I was. I wasn't even thinking straight because I was not in reality. The doubts were in my head that Satan had placed in there about God, about reality, about myself. And so that's how it starts with humanity. It's how it started with Adam and Eve. I just got to start believing that I've misinterpreted or misunderstood what life is all about. 
And so guess who's going to tell them who li- what life is all about? Not God. It'll be Satan. Continue to w- watch this. Point number two. They believe that they are in need of something. Paul will call this a deceitful desire in Ephesians. And so they desire to have that something, whatever that is, they think they lack. Now follow me because I'm going to make application to you and I. What did they think they lacked based on the interaction with Satan? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that the tree was what? Desirable to make one wise. That's what she thought she lacked. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. So what did they think they lacked? Okay, let's unpack this. Satan convinced them that God's holding out on you. You're lacking something, and he doesn't want to give it to you. And you really need this. And what it was was the ability to discern good and evil on their own, autonomously, without God. Now, they had their needs met. God was meeting their needs because God was telling Adam and Eve, you derive your wisdom and knowledge from me not yourself, from me. And you need to be dependent on me and I will guide you through life and tell you what to do. They didn't want that. They felt because they started getting out of reality, they're lacking something. And so, hey, I must, I need this information, man. God's not given to me. He's holding out on me. So I need something. Now bring it back to you and I to, to help us conceptualize this. A lot of people, including Christians, because they're out of reality, start having distorted thinking about their needs. Let me give you an example. Most of us need love. In fact, everyone, I would imagine, needs love, unconditional love, that someone will love them for their good and the bad, that someone will show them affection, that someone will admire them, be proud of them, and connect with them. Everyone needs love and connection. Everyone does. You can't get away from that. But Satan will fool you to think that's not your real need. He'll convince you that what you really need is food or sex or drugs or whatever. That's your real need because you've got this pain in you. And this pain, you've got to kill it. And the way you're going to kill it is through his substitutes. Drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. But the pain really is your lack of being loved, your lack of connection. So he hides the real need, and he gives you a fake need, and you think, oh, that's my real need. I'll be happy if I have a relationship. I'll be happy if I eat tonight a gallon of ice cream, or I'll be happy tonight if I do some drugs or alcohol. And those things temporarily work, by the way. That's why people do them. But he convinced Adam and Eve that they have a need for something, and then they went after it. That's why you can't get someone off of drugs that quick or alcohol. They think they need it. If they don't have it, they won't survive life. They think. And when someone's in that state, they're out of reality. And Satan has got them. And you can see how that works. Now, Satan then, he doesn't leave you there. He piles it on. And he piled it on Adam and Eve, as he does you and I and the tribulation people. Look at the next one. They believe that they were lied to about life and reality. And here's where the flat-out lie comes from. He says, you will not surely die. I know what God has said. He said, when you eat, day of you eat of it, you will die. You're not going to die. That's a lie. Don't believe that. And now they think that God has lied to them. That the distortion not only happens to reality and themselves, the distortion starts happening between them and God. And they get a distorted view of God. That somehow he's an enemy of them. That he doesn't have their best interests. Because, man, Satan is telling me he's lying to me. He's holding out on the knowledge. Why doesn't he give me that knowledge? And all of a sudden, he's got them. He's got them in a distorted view of God. That's why when they see Jesus in the tribulation, and they see him on the throne, they don't want anything to do with him because they have a distorted image of him. And guys, gals, this distortion of God is affecting everybody. it's, It's what the main job of sanctification is to do, is to get you to think right about God. Because we all come to the table with these ideas that are distorted. And I'm going to tell you what the four distortions are about God in counseling. They're the most prominent, and other people have different ones, but here are the most common distortions about God and the way people think about Him. The first one is that God's an abandoner, that He's an abandoned God. He wasn't there for me. He's detached. He's disconnected, uncaring, unloving. He doesn't care about me really that much. I'm not on His radar. He's never there for me. He never will be. 
He doesn't hear me. I'm alone. He's not available to me, so I'll figure this out on my own. That's how a lot of people see God. The second most common way people see God in a distortion of the reality is the angry God. I don't feel safe around him. God is irritated with me for who I am. He doesn't love me or he, does, he can't love me. God is abusive and mean. He will try to control me. He takes pleasure in punishing people. I don't turn to him in tough times. That's a lot of way the people in our universities and professors think, by the way. That's what they tell the kids. Oh, we don't like that fire and brimstone thing. That's what they're referring to. What's the third most? The unpleasable God. I can never do enough. I try hard, but I can't be good enough to please him. He doesn't want me anyway. He doesn't love me. He won't forgive me. There are these lists of rules, and I can't complete them. God only cares about my performance of acting good. I might as well give up because I can't change. That's their view. And the fourth most prominent view of people on this planet is this one, the unprotecting God, that he just winks at evil, selfishness, dismisses hurtfulness, and overlooks irresponsibility. He just lets people get away with perpetrating evil. He either is not just or he's not powerful enough to stop it. He is untrustworthy. I better rely on my own resources and protect myself. That's it. Most people have this view. And so it'll go back to some childhood event. Where was God uh, when I was being abused? How come he didn't come to my rescue? It'll be something like that. It'll be tied to a trauma or a wound in the past. And that distortion causes them to disconnect from God. Think about that. On the four distortions, would you want that kind of God? An angry God, an uh, unloving God, an abandoning God? No one would. That starts happening to Adam and Eve. They get a distortion that he's lied to us. How could he do that? Number five, they experienced shame and didn't know how to deal with it other than hiding and covering their most vulnerable areas. Look what happened to them. Their eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked. This is a state of condition. It's going to become their identity, they think. And they sewed fig leaves. This is, they did all this on their own, by the way. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves what? Coverings. Fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. So they're, they're covering. Hiding. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So they go hide from him. Why did they not just call out and say, we did something wrong, Father. Please help us and fix it. Why didn't they call out for him and ask for help? They knew he was a loving God. They knew he cared for them. Why did they cover and hide? Why does humanity cover and hide? I can tell you what happens. It's simple. When you and I transgress laws, we call that sin. When we sin, it causes alienation to come inside of us. We feel alienated from God, and we feel condemned. There's no doubt they transgressed the law, but the sin took them further in their self-condemnation. They self-condemned themselves, by the way. Have you noticed that? That God has not even talked to them yet, and they're condemning themselves. Does that make sense? They're already doing it to themselves. They're condemning themselves, and they believe they're in a state of condemnation. They realize they're naked. And then what happens is that nakedness is becoming their identity. So what do they got to do? They got to cover it up, and they got to hide from God because he can't let God see them this way. So what ends up happening, it splits reality for them, and it'll split reality for you and I. When you feel condemned for the things you have done and you don't go to God for forgiveness and get that, what will happen is you'll split reality with yourself. What do you mean? Have you noticed when you were a child that your private and your public self were the same virtually? But then as you got older, you have your public self and then you have your private self. You have your front and then you have the real person. And let me tell you theologically what that is. I'm going to front with the ideal that I want you to see, the perfect person, and I'm going to hide and cover the person that I'm ashamed of and I condemn myself. And that's without even God saying a word. They people will do that. We did it. I did it. You split yourself. So you have your coverings. is not so much a leaf. Your covering is performance and what you show everybody. And you will do that and hide the condemned person, the shameful person that's behind you, and you split reality. And Satan's got everyone doing this because it did happen to Adam and Eve. And this is what people say. 
I'm all bad. I'm unlovable. I'm different. There's something wrong with me. Something about me scares people away. My sins are worse than other people's sins. I don't deserve love. My neediness and feelings are, will overwhelm people. I can't be in a good relationship with people because they'll find out who I am and reject me. And that's before God has even entered the situation. Now go to number six, the last point. They never internalize. This is what happens to the book of Revelation and the people and the inhabitants of this earth. They will never internalize grace and mercy in order to learn how to accept the bad in them without rejecting the relationship with God. Notice this, what he says in verse 11. And he said, who told you you were naked? I didn't tell you. Who told you? Who told Adam and Eve? It wasn't even Satan. Who told them that? Their condemned hearts told them that. They condemned themselves. God didn't even condemn them. Now, yes, they trespassed, they sinned, but notice how God is there. I knew you would do I'm condemning you right now. He never said that, right? They condemned themselves. He's saying, who told you were in a state of nakedness? Who told you that? How did you learn that? And it's not like God doesn't know. You know he knows, but he's questioning them to get answers out of them. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? That's a violation, trespass, but not an identity. Also for Adam and his wife, look what he does. The Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. So here's what God did to get them out of their self-condemnation. I'm going to have to do something for you in order to clean up this transgression that you did because there's got to be a penalty to this. And so I'm going to sacrifice an animal, and the blood is going to cover your sins, not take them away, but cover them until Messiah comes. And the blood will cover that transgression, and then I'm going to make you tunics that you can wear and cover up your shame and nakedness. So what Adam and Eve had to experience, and what all humanity has to experience, is God's grace and mercy in order to get out of that situation. And that becomes where the tipping point is. If the person will accept the grace and mercy and the love of God, and get past their distortions, get past their images of God. And if they do that and reach out for His offer of grace and mercy, it changes them. I believe we're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven. They accepted His grace and mercy. They accepted it, and He made coverings for them. You have to do that as an individual, and that takes humility. And a lot of people just simply don't want to do it because they feel so condemned, they feel so ashamed, they won't even let God help them. So when you see man sticking his fist in God's face saying, we're not going to have this man to rule over us. Really what they're in, they're in self-condemnation, shame identity, and they don't, they have a distorted image of God, a distorted image of reality, a distorted image of themselves, and they don't want his help. Stay away. I'll figure this out on my own. It's the height of arrogance. It's the height of pride because you have to humble yourself to ask for help. But that's what at least Adam and Eve did. But that's why they rebel against him, even seeing him on the throne. They don't see him in the right light. And unfortunately, a lot of humanity does that. Romans 2.4 says, It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. The humanity don't, doesn't want his kindness, doesn't want his love. That's what it comes down to. That's crazy. Yeah. Because when you sin, it puts you out of reality. You will lose your mind. That's the nature of sin. I read a story this week, we'll end on this, of a daughter of an individual. And this daughter was telling the story of her father. In an incredible irony, this little boy grew up in a home and was trained to be a priest. He actually went to seminary, and somewhere in seminary, he turned on God. And then he got tutored by Lenin, and he was trained and groomed, and that individual ended up killing about 50 million people on planet Earth. At one point in his career, he said this about God. You know, they are fooling us. There is no God. All this talk about God is sheer nonsense. This is from a seminary-trained guy who grew up in a home that was training priests. There is no God, he said. That individual is Joseph Stalin. 
His last name is Stalin. It's not his real name. It means steel because that's how he was in life after this. It was his daughter that told the story about his, her father and how, how wicked and bad her dad was. And she describes on his deathbed. Very interesting. This is how rebellious he became towards God, how distorted reality, a murder of 50 million people because of communism. He was having massive hallucinations on his deathbed. Massive hallucinations. I don't know what was on meds or something. She didn't say. But she said, right before he died, he stood up in the bed, leaned up, and looked to heaven and shook his fist. And she said, then he died. Wow. In rebellion to the very end. And she recounts that, you know what happened? She says, growing up, my dad was nearly in poverty conditions, abject poverty growing up. They didn't have any food or anything like that. That's why a communism appealed to him and things of that nature. And he said he was relentlessly beat by his father. He was relentlessly beat by his father. And she's looking back and saying, I think the turning point was with my dad was that he suffered so many wounds and trauma from people who said they loved God that eventually when he got through it all, he turned on God. That father of his distorted his reality, and he never came back. And he ended up killing 50 million people. That's what can happen to lost humanity. If Satan can get you thinking out of reality and not coming to God for his grace and mercy, he's got you. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.